Welcome to The Exam Room. I'm your host, Brian Vardabedian. Recently, I had the chance to sit down with Dr. Tony Slonim, CEO of Renown Health, a healthcare system in Northern Nevada. Now, as most of you know, this is the first time I had had a healthcare CEO in the exam room with me. So I was a little bit out of my element. Uh, but Dr. Slonim is a great conversationalist, and we had the chance to explore some really unique and interesting things that are happening at Renown Health, right from the way they're leveraging population health in Northern Nevada, right down to a really interesting story about how they leverage telehealth out of necessity to rescue a small central Nevada town that had re- recently lost all of its physicians. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It's a little different than what I normally do here in the exam room. But it offers a really interesting lens on healthcare and where it is headed. Enjoy. For most consumers, the search for a healthcare provider is a frustrating maze of bewildering choices and unanswered questions. And they really want to hear what other patients have to say in order to make a decision with confidence. With Loyal's Empower Solution, you have the tools to do just that empower your patients, the patient and provide a solution, maximizing star ratings while introducing deeper insights into what patients really are saying about their experience. You could sort, approve, and publish patient reviews of physicians, services, and even practices using some of the intelligent features like auto-approval and syntax highlighting. To learn more, visit them online at loyalhealth.com. Dr. Slonim, welcome to the exam room. Thank you, Brian. Pleasure to be here. So it's it's kind of funny how you landed here. One of my friends was at a communication conference in Utah and came back and said, I met this really cool CEO of this hospital system from Nevada, and uh, you really should talk to him for the podcast. And so your reputation is growing, it seems. <laughs> that is awesome. That was a great conference. We had a lot of fun there. You, you know, it's interesting. When I look around at, in, in Houston here at our hospital administrators, generally, hospital administrators have been kind of below the radar, I think, on some level. But I've noticed with our own administrators, they're starting to get into Twitter and these sorts of things. So you see some value with this sort of public outreach, right? As a CEO, one of the most important things that you have to do is you have very broad constituencies that you need to reach out to. And so Right. My connectivity as a physician certainly allows me to get into the physician community, but I've also got 7,000 employees. I've got an entire community and they're all, they all represent very different interests and ways in which they'd like to be communicated with. And for a segment of them, social media works. And so we're using it as a toolbox, tool in our toolbox. So tell us about Renown Health. Uh, what, what are the standouts here? And tell me about your, about your, your system. Sure. Well, you know, there's there's two ways that people measure the size of a system. So we're a local, not-for-profit, integrated healthcare system. And they measure systems traditionally in terms of either bed size or revenue. By both of those metrics, we're a moderately sized system. So we've got about 1,000 beds and we've got about $1.3 billion in revenue. And that puts us in the moderate range. And there's some mammoth organizations that are thousands and thousands of beds and billions and billions of dollars of revenue. We're not. We're here to be a service to the community. We, we're fortunate that we've got a lot of market share. And we cover a very broad geographic region, which makes us somewhat unique. 
We're the only tertiary and the only trauma center between Salt Lake City and Sacramento. And while that's easy to say, we cover about 100,000 square miles, Brian, and, and a very Whoa. rural environment where, you know, 30 uh, critical access hospitals service those communities. And, and we need to be partners to them as we're driving care for our community and for our, our great state to a new level. So you... Um provide traditional hospital services, but you're also in, you you have an insurance product as well, right? Do you cover lives? Is that right? Correct. So we've got, you know, we're put together in this way. We've got three acute care hospitals. One's a a large 800 bed trauma center, two other hospitals, one about 70 beds. And we're in partnership with another one that's very small, 25 beds. Um, we have a re- in addition, we have a rehab rehabilitation hospital. We have a skilled nursing facility. We employ about 350 doctors in our medical group. And we've got the usual constituents of things like hospice, home care programs, palliative care. Um, and as you mentioned, we are uh, we have an insurance division integrated with our uh, with our health system. That makes us unique. Only 100 health systems in the country have an integrated health plan or our so-called provider-sponsored plans. So that's interesting. So you're incented to keep people healthy, I would imagine, right? Absolutely. When, when people talk about the ACO or Accountable Care Organization movement that came out of the Affordable Care Act back in 2011, ACOs were top of mind. How do you drive better value, meaning improve quality and reduce costs, well, that's day-to-day operations when you own an insurance company. This is fascinating because, you know, medicine is traditionally been what I call a reactive specialty, meaning that we act on disease after it's already evident. And so traditionally, hospitals have been in the business of taking care of people when they need a bed, right? Exactly. You know, one of one of the most interesting things, Brian, is that, you know, I, and I say this often, not a, a little bit tongue-in-cheek. So as you know, I'm a physician. I'm actually an ICU physician. So high-end, you know, really tech-based care is the kind of medicine I practice. And I also have a doctorate in in health policy and public health. And I, I joke with people that my doctorate in policy is probably worth more to me now than my MD, right. given the work that I'm doing and the impact that we have on a community's health and prevention. So- Tell us a little bit about the Healthy Nevada Project. This kind of caught my eye in terms of being something that kind of represents a, a trend of the future. Tell us about that. Well, we're very excited about the Healthy Nevada Project. It, it, it's like one of those simple things that uh, came about just serendipitously. Um, I was introduced, I'm from New Jersey originally, and I was introduced through a colleague to another great scientist in town uh, by the name of Dr. Jimsky, who's a scientist at the Desert Research Institute. And the Desert Research Institute is a public entity under the higher education division that governs both the Research Institute and the University of Nevada and all the community colleges. And Joe and I met for coffee. The, the, the camaraderie was we were both from New Jersey and found ourselves in Northern Nevada. And so at Starbucks over coffee, we talked about the massive amounts of data that are available in healthcare. And Joe, by, by background, is a, a genetic scientist and a, 
a, a data scientist is a computer geek who loves data. And he says, wow, mm-hmm. you know what a bunch of scientists could do with all those data? And, you know, I, I have a background in health services research. And so I, I knew of the value of data and large database analysis. But the thing that Joe and his team brought to the conversation was um, a different kind of analytics. How do we apply machine learning and predictive analytics, natural language processing to make sense out of the data? And by virtue of the fact that we put all of these data elements in our electronic medical record together, wow, we really had a robust opportunity to learn about some of the health and healthcare patterns in our community, given that we have 70% market share and um, you know, care for a large proportion of patients along a spectrum of care, outpatient, primary care, high-end tertiary care, post-acute care in terms of rehabilitation, skilled nursing, and even home care. So there was a wealth of information there. The Desert Research Institute is known mostly for its work in environmental science. And so what Joe's team helped us do was to uh, complement the clinical data with environmental and social data. So now we have an understanding about the environmental and social impacts on health and disease more broadly. And then the one domain that we were missing, this all came out of a coffee, if you can imagine. The one mm-hmm. domain that we were missing was genetic data. And so what we did was broad-scale community-based genetic testing. We're currently at 35,000 participants, and we give them their gene, uh, their gene sequencing and their information from their gene sequencing. And then we complement our analytics program with that. We're very, very excited. We're actually just giving back to patients, uh, participants, I should say, um, their results for the top three genetically predictable diseases, Lynch syndrome, uh, BRCA-positive breast cancer, and uh, familial hypercholesterolemia. So, Tony, more specifically, uh, obviously giving that information back to patients who are unaware of their risk obviously has value by itself. Where do you see, I mean, what's the phase of this? Uh, I guess you want to look at environmental events and try to warn people ahead of time to keep them out of the hospital. Is that accurate? So the way that we've approached this is we don't want to be too paternalistic in the way that we help people manage their own health and their risk factors for disease. So think of this on a spectrum. There will be people who are only interested at a personal level on, you know, the kind of infotainment aspects of genetics. Where did I come from? What does my ancestry look like? Right. There are other people at the individual level who are very interested in, you know, gene number 20 and the cytosine thymine linkage there that creates a disease, for example. And our job is not to tell them where they should be on that spectrum, but to help them understand wherever they are, what information is available to help them modify their risk factors so that a disease doesn't come down the line. In the case of familial hypercholesterolemia, for example, there are things they can do to live healthier. And we want to help them do that if they're so inclined. The other important information is not at the individual level. It's at the neighborhood or at the community level. Because when you amass this number of 
large gene sequences and have the information about the community to this degree, you can really understand the patterns of illness and disease in your community. So I always like to say, if I put on my CEO hat, this is, the, this is one of the best and most informed strategic planning processes in the country because mm-hmm. I get to understand the risk points for disease and illness that might erupt in my community five to 10 years from now and can start developing the programming now to make sure patients are appropriately cared for in five to 10 years. Wow. I always like to say that in the 19th century, we treated symptoms. In the 20th century, we treated diseases. And in the 21st century, we will predict, preempt, and prevent disease. And I think that's exactly what you're doing there, right? That's exactly right. The other thing that I think this does, right, I, as a physician myself, I believe that there will always be a need for physicians. The important way that we do our work, though, is likely to change over time. So when you've been involved in team-based and team-oriented care, what you realize is you want to use the physician's experience and, and education for the things that they could be most valuable in. And there are other members of the team that might be able to manage some elements so you only present to the physician the decision-making that they need to make. That does a couple of things, right? Particularly in this era of burnout, it helps physicians to be as effective as they can be, and it uses them for the talent that they have and and allows other members of the team to use their talents in a way that contributes to the care of the patient. For too long, I believe, our medical model has been, well, um, the physician it is the, the sole decision maker on the team. And we've got to break down those barriers. We've got lots of educated and talented people in healthcare who can contribute to the overall health and well-being of a patient. Yeah, that's very interesting and very true. And I think that's very forward thinking of, uh, of you and the way uh, you operate at Renown. On this issue of the Healthy Nevada Project, are there, are there issues that have come up with, with privacy, for example? Is there, are there concerns about knowing too much or is that, uh, how do you address that? Or has that really not been something that's been, how do you address that? I think, um, so obviously I, I could spend the whole podcast talking about security, data security, the privacy issues. Um, in summary, we assured the privacy of patients and, and we're running this off of a research protocol. So this has IRB approval and it's, um, there are multi-level consent processes by which people have to go through in order to participate. The The participation is actually free, but we, we want to make sure that we're protecting them and their rights uh, appropriately in this conversation. Furthermore, the because it's important, it's, this is real, we take this very seriously. Mm-hmm. People are sharing with us their most personal information. It doesn't get any more personal than your genome, right? And that's what they're sharing. There's no more, uh, there's no closer tie to your identity than your genes. And for this conversation, uh, we really wanted to make sure that we were protective. So what we've done is Desert Research Institute has been, if you will, the warehouser of the information. And we've done that purposely because we're both an insurer and the deliverer of care. And we've created firewalls between 
the healthcare delivery and insurance enterprise and the research enterprise just for that purpose. Hey, everybody, this is Reed Smith. And this is Chris Boyer. And we are co-hosts on a show called Touchpoint, which is a podcast that's dedicated to the discussions on digital marketing and online patient engagement strategies, not only for just hospitals, but health systems and physician practices. In every episode, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on digital tools, solutions, strategies, and other things that are impacting the healthcare industry today. And while you listen to this show, we would certainly love you to check out ours. All you have to do is swing on over to touchpoint.health for more information and also some of the other shows that are featured on the Touchpoint Media Network. This issue of population management is uh, is interesting, and it uh, there was a news story that caught my eye a couple of weeks back. Uh, NPR reported that Nationwide Children's Hospital is actually buying up affordable housing for its patients. Uh, apparently, they have a large population at risk, and they they've seen the value of even providing affordable housing. I mean, this is kind of the same trend, right? We're sort of looking after our communities as hospitals. Absolutely. I think, you know, and, and as P, as a pediatrician and as pediatricians, you and I understand the importance of how families interact to assure, right? Every child mm-hmm. health issue is a family issue until proven otherwise. Right. And families have challenges related to housing insecurity, food insecurity, the ability to make monthly rent, the ability to make sure, you know, how can we challenge a mom about making sure her child gets appropriate immunizations when she may not know where that child's next meal is coming from? Right. And so if we allow ourselves as providers to look at this through the lens of the family or the patient, we may actually be in a better place to understand just how our preventive efforts need to be a little bit more encompassing if we're going to do the right work for them and on their behalf. This is uh, really interesting because this is the way medicine is supposed to be, right? Um, I've always suggested this is the most interesting time to be in medicine. And when you look at this overlay of environment and genetics and, and, and social it's really remarkable. And I, I think that's what's so important about the Healthy Nevada Project is we have integrated into the clinical care conversation not only the clinical histories of the patient and the family, but the environmental contributions, the genetic contributions, and the social contributions to the overall health status of that client. And Understanding what puts them at risk and where there are opportunities using technology to make them better and live healthier is important. But for one other example, Northern Nevada has a very weird demography in terms of uh, the way that the what we call the basin is shaped. And so air patterns come in and create air particulate matter to descend and stay either from fires or from a variety of other environmental contributions in what we call the valley. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that we've realized over time, and we would have never put this together without the expertise of our, our data scientists, is that atrial fibrillation admissions increase when certain weather patterns uh, exist in our community and in our environment. Wow. And what we've seen is that 
those environmental contributions to illness really create an adverse occurrence. Well, think about what that would allow us to do. We can predict the weather five days hence. We, every one of us watches the evening news to see what the weekend weather is going to look like. Well, imagine that we could use the information from those data and let the patients with atrial fibrillation know how to modify their medication regimen so they don't have a flare-up and don't go to the emergency room and don't get admitted to the hospital. Wow, now we're really getting ahead of the curve as physicians in terms of the way that we're providing service to patients. Tony, let's talk a little bit about telehealth. One of the uh, biggest transitions that I see happening in medicine is the context of care. Um, you know, when when I talked about this idea of reacting to disease in the old days, we did that in a square room face-to-face. Now it seems that care is mediated by handheld technology and uh, internet-based platforms, uh, or sometimes, sometimes call it remote care. Um you guys are heavily involved in, or you guys are involved in telehealth. Is that correct? That's correct. And so I, I picked up on this story that I heard about Tonotha, Nevada. It was a town in Nevada that lost its doctors apparently, and you guys provide some solution. Is that right? Yeah. Let me tell you a little bit about that because for me, this was a, an amazing case study in how you can you can really help people. This Tonopah, Nevada is a very rural environment. It's about four hours. Uh, it's equidistant from Reno and Las Vegas. Reno and Las Vegas, Nevada are about eight hours apart. And through the middle of the desert sits Tonopah, about equidistant, four hours each direction by car. And a few years ago now, three or so years ago, I received a call from the CEO of the hospital. And they, like many rural hospitals, they were having difficulties in terms of how they were going to continue to provide care to the community. Tonopah consists of about 1,800 residents. And, you know, like many rural communities, they're, you know, hospitals depend on uh, having a census and having a number of people that can can be cared for. And for me, uh, you know, Nevada is a poster child for rural health care. We had uh, a hospital in a rural community that was not able to sustain itself over time. Nonetheless, it seemed that, you know, right here in our state, someone needed to step up to assure that those patients received care when they needed it. And so, we came up with what I think is an innovative me- method of providing population health to 1,800 people in Tonopah. We do a lot of telemedicine. We have a mid-level provider on the ground there for the kinds of things that uh, might be able to be handled by a mid-level provider. And in, the, in times of crisis, we have worked with emergency medical services to be able to get people out to, a, to the nearest hospital when they need it. And while this may not be ideal, may not be perfect, we are learning about the ways in which we can stretch telehealth services, specialty care by telemedicine, providing to people who choose to live in the rural environment access to healthcare in ways that they might not be able to get it if they don't have a hospital in town. So this is remarkable because I guess it's a story that arose out of necessity, right? Correct. And, you know, you look at a lot of hospitals, they want to jump on to telehealth for 
other 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 reasons beyond what's absolutely needed. But it, this sounds like uh, your capacity to move in and use the latest technology to provide service to a population was uh, was groundbreaking, right? I I think it was. And I think it's a new way for us to let's push the envelope and think differently about the ways in which we provide care. Uh And when you're forced to do it, you you may come up with different solutions than if you have the luxury of not being forced to do it. Exactly. Uh, One of the other examples that I like to use is how we're providing telehealth care to the prison system. Um, Nevada has a number of prisons in northern Nevada. And how we can assure that we're providing ample support to inmates and their health is important for us. There are some things that obviously you won't be able to do remotely if someone needs a procedure or a surgery. But there are many things, including specialty visit access, that you can provide remotely. And when you think about the, when you think about the economics of that, it allows you to be very efficient. Some of these inmates require, you know, two armed guards, transport many hours one in one direction to get to our facilities. And, and this allows it to be done much more effortlessly uh, as we approach the work. Very good. Back in your home base in Reno, um, how are you using telehealth in your in your main hospitals? Is it truly for delivery of care or are you using it more for transition, transitional care with EMS or how, what are a couple of the ways you're using telehealth locally? Yeah. So we're using telehealth in a number of ways here at Renown. I think uh, if you were to ask me, we're still not using it enough. And mm-hmm. one of the great benefits that we have as a not-for-profit health system is we've got a, a great bo- board that is comprised of community members. And, and the great news about that is they're pushing us even more. Not only to use telehealth in remote areas like the Tonopah example, but how do we use technology to provide health, even if it's just down the block as a matter of convenience? Because mm-hmm. people would rather be seen in their living room with their primary care doctor than having to drive 20 minutes to their office. We if we think about it, we can make care much more patient-centric and not doctor-centric in the way that we're elaborating this. And certain segments of our community are particularly interested in this. Millennials are all about convenience care delivered by technology. What we know about the millennial population is that they don't want, to the degree that Uh, some other generations do, that personal relationship. They want care when they want it, for what they want it for, in the most convenient and organized way. And they want to be in a position where they've been given data that they can make their own decisions. And, And that's what we're able to do using telemedicine. So we're thinking very differently about where technology is and how we use it broadly, not only in the rural environment. Tony, where do you where do you see telehealth going? Uh, if you were to look ahead five ten years in terms of what the technology is doing now, um, obviously a lot of this is telephone with screen um, kind of technology. Where, where do you see telehealth headed? If you can look into your crystal ball, yeah, I think you know, I, I think the way that we deliver care in the future using technology is going to be very very different. But we also have to remember that not all clinicians are comfortable 
delivering care in a way where they were educated, uh, putting their hands on patients, right? Right. How am I going to learn and think about what I'm being presented with from a patient if I can't touch them, push on their belly? Um, and, and so we have to come up with other ways to help doctors and nurses and other clinicians learn how they can effectively deliver care in this environment. The technology will be there. Uh, I think it's important for us to push the envelope on the use of the technology and the and how we embrace technology as clinicians. A couple of years back at Medicine X, venture capitalist Esther Dyson was asked, how do we get these doctors to change with these new technologies? And she said, it's going to happen one retirement at a time. So, you know, this issue of, of what I call changing context of care on some level it is going to have to take some time to sort of transition. Um, but I just want to finish up by talking a little bit about how how we operationalize innovation. I mean, obviously, you've done some amazing things here at Renown. Um, how how do you get buy-in from physicians, again, who who – who feel like they they just have to touch patients, or how do you get you get middle level hospital administrators who kind of want to keep doing things the way they've always done them? Is this a cultural thing, or do you have a center of innovation or a, a director? How does that work? Yeah, so a, a couple of things I would say, Brian. We're by no means experts in this. We're learning as we go, and I think in the cycle of innovation, evolving our approach with time. We do have what we call our Institute for Health Innovation, uh, the largest project of which is what the, is the Healthy Nevada project that we alluded to earlier. Um, I believe that uh, as part of my responsibilities as the CEO is, you know, I, as a CEO, I'm responsible for two things and only two things. One is the culture that we create and the values that we try to live for the community. And the second thing is how do we elucidate our strategy for renowned health to make sure that we're serving the needs of the community of Northern Nevada? And, you know, it's nice only to have two jobs, but as you can imagine, mm. those are two very big umbrellas that uh, under which we have a, a series of activities. And I think as a part of evolving the strategy, my work is a, a large part of it is about innovation. And I want to, I dissect this into two ways. One, I think there's strategic operations, as I've been thinking about this a lot lately. You know, we've got to think about the programs. We've got to think about how we implement them. We've got to make sure at the end of the day, we're a large healthcare system that the community depends on for keeping them healthy and uh, serving them when they're sick or injured. And on the, at another point, there's what I call less of the strategic operations and more of the strategic innovation. Think of that as a skunk works team. Think of that as a small group of people who get together and really have like-minded approaches of how they think up new ideas and implement them. And I would put the Healthy Nevada Project in that bucket. There's not a healthcare system in the country that needs to do Healthy Nevada Project. And our community would be doing just fine. We would be delivering good care as a large health system if we never had the Healthy Nevada Project. But I think the innovative piece of that is that we can actually take the care to an entirely new level 
By thinking creatively, going out of industry, and tapping into the expertise of others. And so my operation doesn't need it, but if I want to be a premier health organization and serve my community at the highest level, we certainly need um, that kind of strategic innovation. So that's how I organize it in my mind. Not every, I don't think everybody on the team should be necessarily involved in the creation of ideas for that strategic innovation because there's a lot of work that has to go on as a health system to make sure we're delivering every day great care for those people who come to our hospitals, our doctors, our emergency departments. And so while it's a little bit artificially separated, I think um, it works for us. And then once the idea is a little bit more vetted, we can roll it into the operational side and make sure that we're executing effectively uh, and integrating it, as I shared with you, that we're doing this Health Nevada project. Now we're at the point where we can integrate it into our day-to-day operations. Tony, this has been a remarkable conversation. You know, I look at what you are doing at Renown, and I think one of the things that allows you to do the things that you're doing is the fact that you, well, obviously the leadership that you bring and the vision that you bring and the way you see innovation is key, but you're, it sounds like you're nimble enough to be able to move and, and, and shape to the, to the world around you, right? Right. Right. And I think that is key. We have to be nimble, which is why I, I go back to that separation point. You need a small team that can be nimble enough to execute and investigate ideas, opportunities, challenges with those opportunities before you integrate it into mainstream operations. Because out of the 10 ideas, one or two of them may be worthwhile. The others need to kind of go into a, a filing cabinet. Listen, thanks for joining me in the exam room. This has been really insightful and uh, a lot of lessons to be learned there. Take care. This show is made possible in part by the Social Health Institute. Through research and partnerships with healthcare organizations around the country, the Social Health Institute explores new and innovative ways for hospitals and healthcare organizations to develop and enhance their social media and digital marketing strategy. To learn more about the Social Health Institute, visit them online at socialhealthinstitute.com. That's socialhealthinstitute.com. Thank you for joining us in the exam room. If you like what you heard here, please rate the program, review us, or let folks know about us. And if you have any really cool ideas that you'd like discussed here, please feel free to let us know. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.